sex talk. Derek and Miley. Cause sexuality is tough. And okay, sexist isn't good enough. No. Sex talk with Derek and Miley. Hello, folks. Thank you for joining us. This is Sex Talk with Erica Miley. Erica Miley here, and I have a wonderful guest with us, Ariel Shoemaker Hammond, therapist and photographer. Let me know if I'm leaving anything out there. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, I mean, there's so much, but yeah, that pretty much covers it. (laughs) I love it. I love it. So, Ariel, I want you to kind of introduce your specialty, what you do and who you work with. Yeah. So I am, like you said, I'm a clinical therapist. I also have a master's in public health and I specialize in reproductive health. Um, Yeah. And for the past 10 years or so, I've been working mostly in the perinatal community. So I work with folks who are going through fertility struggles, perinatal loss, or pregnancy and postpartum. It is so needed. Oh my gosh. Yes, oh it my is. gosh. It is. Um, so, I mean, you and I, before we started recording, we, we started to try to cover all of our bases and we realized, oh, you know what? We're probably going to be here for five hours. So we're going <laughs> to. <laughs> yes, there are a lot of layers to this. <laughs> we're going to hit the best things that we possibly can. And um, we'll more than likely have Ariel come back be because awesome. he's got just this giant wealth of knowledge. So let's start with the fertility journey. I really want to kind of dive deep on that and be able to give the listeners a really good picture of how to get help, when they should seek help, all the things. So let's start start at the beginning. Yeah. So, I mean, I think it's important to talk a little bit about what the fertility journey looks like just in general. You know, if you're talking about a cisgender heterosexual couple, they get to a point where they decide, okay, time to make a baby. Let's do this thing. And I think most couples at the beginning, if they know, you know, what they're supposed to do, that can look like timed intercourse, right? So sex around ovulation before and through ovulation. So this is assuming that they know when ovulation is, not everybody does, but that's another topic. Yeah. So once we get to that point, you know, couples will start to have that timed intercourse. And, you know, as far as talking about sex, because I know that's what we're here for, that part generally can actually be kind of a libido booster at the beginning, I find with couples, you know, it's kind of sexy, like, Ooh, we might make a baby. This is exciting. We have a goal. Um, We have a goal, right? It's not just fun times. It's fun times with a purpose. So yeah, like that can be exciting. And I find that that excitement can boost things in the bedroom for, you know, a couple months, usually at least a couple cycles. And then again, if folks are doing it correctly, right? Like timed intercourse when it's supposed to happen, that can start to wane a little bit after a few months. And, you know, it's going to be, it's a lot of work. Exactly. Like timing when you're going to do it. Sometimes people are already charting or checking cervical mucus or taking their temperature and all that fun stuff. And that starts to, it can start to feel a little bit like a chore. And I find that a lot of couples use that word. Like it has not been sexy for a little bit. It has started to become a chore. And when that happens is different for every couple. Like some couples I find, you know, especially if they go into it, like we're just going to see what happens and not really being so hyper-focused, that sexy time can last a little bit longer. But for those couples where it's really laser focused on making a baby, I find that that begins to impact the intimacy within a couple months. 
Yes, absolutely. Sure. I, th- I think <laughs> personal information, probably my husband. <laughs> no, but I mean, when we were when we were trying to have our son, who is now six, it was that game of trying to figure out the process. And I think what happens often with couples is they start to get to know their bodies in ways that they never understood before. Right. Yeah. I mean, I had the same, you know, I talk about this. I use self-disclosure when it's appropriate with couples a lot because I had my own fertility journey. And first it took about a year to get pregnant the first time. And then we had a loss and that was awful and horrifying and traumatic. And and so sex just became a different thing. It really became like the goal is to make a baby and less about connecting with partners. And I find that happening a lot with partners, you know, and then they get to a point where they're actually just having sex around ovulation. Like we're not having intimacy at other times of the month anymore. It's just in those few days before ovulation and leading through it. So then the partner can start to feel like I'm just kind of being used for the baby making. And that can be a lot of pressure. There's a lot of psychological pressure that happens with that, you know, where the partner might feel like, why am I not getting my partner pregnant? And the part, you know, the other partner can feel like, you know, why am I not getting pregnant? What's wrong with my body? And so it can, you know, self-esteem can start to take a hit. So there's a lot of things that impact it, even in those early stages of just trying, even before we've reached intervention. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I, I am I am hearing all of the echoes of some of the things my clients have said to mm-hmm. me. That this, uh, we feel like this is work. And now right. I feel like now I'm going to have performance issues because now I'm worried that I'm not doing it right or I'm broken or I'm the one who's not getting the job done. Mm-hmm. Exactly. And some, you know, cisgender men do actually have performance issues because there's so much pressure. They might be experiencing erectile dif- dysfunction for the first time. And so then that becomes this whole psychological mindfuck that, you know, is really difficult for both people. And if you're avoiding intimacy in the other aspects, right, like you're not as affectionate with each other, you're not going out as many dates because you're really so hyper-focused on the fertility piece, it just, you know, adds to that impact on the intimacy. Right. And I think that's something that uh, <laughs> we could be here forever on this right? camera about. <laughs> that, that sex education in schools at all doesn't talk talk to you about, about no. the actual difficulty about getting pregnant. Yeah. Um, they make it seem like, oh my God, if you look at each other, you're going to get pregnant. <laughs> you have a, just a certain kind of kiss and that's, the, that's, that's all it. you got to do. It. That's all you got to do. <laughs> and and this is like oftentimes the first time people, especially if you are actually attempting to have a child, that they encounter that. That's right. And then it goes on for months and then sometimes years. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I mean, a lot of things, I think it's important to note too, like what is the definition of infertility, right? Because a lot of couples don't even know that. I think, again, for the reasons you just said, like a lot, we all kind of assume, oh my God, as soon as we go off birth control, it's going to happen immediately. When actually it does, you know, the average is about 30% the first time around for healthy couples. So like, that's not a super high average and they don't even consider it infertility until after a year of trying for a healthy couple under the age of 35 or around six months for a couple over 35. So yeah, I mean, it's, it's a little bit longer of a process. I think than most people assume it's going to be. So let's talk a little bit about that definition. So like after a year, yeah. then it's officially considered infertility. And then do they, right. do, is there other like definitions around that? Yeah. So, I mean, well, one thing, just that definition all by itself, I think is surprising for people and really stressful because, you know, I mean, you've gone through your journey. I've gone through my journey. When you know what you're doing, 
and you're trying to hit that mark every month and then you're having the two week wait after ovulation mm-hmm. like am i pregnant am i not what are all these symptoms i'm feeling oh my gosh it's definitely pregnancy no it's not here comes my period like that is stressful you know yes and collection so collection of tests that exactly. throw up in your bathroom underneath the sink. Yes, exactly. <laughs> yeah. And you like get really creative, like you know where to find the cheap ones and the cheap ovulation tests and all that. But like, yeah, I mean, a year of that, the impact of that on a couple is is a long time. And so I've actually, I have couples that lie to their <laughs> reproductive endocrinologists that they'll go in and say, oh yeah, I've definitely been trying at least a year. And it's only, you know, it's only quote unquote been seven or eight months, but they know that they are hitting the mark right every month and it's not happening. So something is not right. So then the next step, right? Like what are the next steps? Well, you go to a reproductive endocrinologist, which is a doctor with specialized training in this area, and they will usually run a hormone panel. They'll check the um, partner's semen and make sure all of that is correct. There's other various tests that we could spend, you know, days talking about, but at some point they might try something like Clomid or Fermera which are medications to help with ovulation. They'll try that for a few cycles. Then kind of the next step would be intrauterine insemination in a clinic using the partner's sperm. And then finally, IVF, which is you know what most people think of in vitro fertilization. All of this is very clinical. It all involves a lot of medication and it's all really expensive because most insurance companies do not cover it. Right. And it, and I know I want to make sure that we kind of back up a step and because you and I had already, we, we talked about this, that our LGBTQ plus folks, yeah. this, this part of the journey can be in very intense and worse. It can be very intense and worse because it's often right at the beginning. Like they don't get the luxury of just seeing what happens. So generally, you know, if a lesbian couple is trying to get pregnant, they need to have some sperm. And so that can come from someone they know, a known donor. If it's fresh, it usually works a little bit better. And so they can do that in the house, even like at home using some special sterile materials, or they could do it in the clinical office, but that's from the beginning, right? So it's like already it's making you know, their intimacy is taken out of the equation. And so that can, you know, immediately impact it. Not to mention the fact that finances are going to be impacted. Even if you're doing it in the home, you still have to do something like fill out legal documents. And that's expensive to make, you know, with the with the donor. If you're doing it in the office, there's all of that. You know, if they decide, you know, some lesbian couples will go straight for IVF because they won't, they want both partners biologically connected. And so they'll have you know, one of the partners donate the eggs, the other, you know, which will then be inseminated and then placed in the other partner's uterus. So that can be a very expensive, very clinical journey right from the start. Absolutely. Making your, essentially making your body this, this, this lab without without any of the intimacy and the connection and the emotion, the emotional pieces of it. When we know all of that's Mm -hmm. happening. (laughs) Yes, yes. And we also know that, I mean, you've probably talked about this, but finances is one of the major things that impacts intimacy between couples, right? So when you're going through this fertility journey, that's probably going to impact things. And again, like going back to our LGBTQI folks, like when you have, um, say, a lesbian couple that's having to access this, they, a lot of insurance companies will not even, you know, even the insurance companies that do cover some fertility costs won't cover it until you've been diagnosed with infertility. 
right? And so like a lot of these folks don't actually have infertility. They just need to go this route. So there's some economic injustice about it, which can really impact that, you know, the level of stress between couples, which is going to show up in the bedroom for sure. And we're not, I mean, we haven't even touched on, like, I imagine there is some serious stress around even just choosing the donor. Like, oh yeah, for sure. Who other person that's going to be involved in this entire process with us. Right. Like if you have a known donor, then you have the benefit of having fresh sperm, which is exciting and tends to work a little bit better. But like you don't know everything about them. They haven't been, you know, that sperm hasn't most likely been um, tested as well as the frozen sperm. And so, you know, then you have to go through the whole legal process and like, who do we feel comfortable with? What's it going to look like down the road? I mean, it's a lot. It's a lot of stress. Again, that I think what you mentioned about the economic barriers here are, mm-hmm. I think, really, really important because the the donor piece, the the just paying for all of these procedures. Right. I mean, I mean, we could start a whole different conversation about economic barriers and access to healthcare. But I mean, right? right. Yeah, <laughs> totally. I mean, you know, even if even taking economics out of the equation, if you look at race, like race impacts fertility journeys too. I mean, in general, what we know is that, you know, women of color, people of color are just as impacted by fertility issues as white people, yet they are much more likely to not access fertility treatment. Like, why is that, right? Well, when we look at, you know, who is running these clinics and who is advertised in these clinics, it's white people almost always. So it doesn't feel like a super comfortable environment to access. And I mean, that's, you know, there's so many layers to that, but there's a lot to consider when we're thinking what is impacting this couple right now, as far as fertility goes. What is the area, like, uh, I, I'm thinking of like when you actually get to step in and be helpful to a couple, yeah. like what what happens, what is that process and how how would they even start trying to find a therapist that even knows right. a thing about this. I mean, you and I do. So folks, just keep that in mind. <laughs> Ariel and I, and I'm going to make sure you all know how to get a hold of us. We, we both feel very passionate about this, Ariel in particular. So how does a couple find you? How does How do you step in to help them through this process or even after the fact? Yeah. I mean, I think it depends. So, so some of it, my hope is, I haven't seen this happen too much, but my hope is, is that fertility clinics become much more aware of what folks are going through emotionally. And I've heard, you know, some clinics do this much better than others, but, um, you know, being, having a list on hand of folks who have this training and this experience and really understand what the fertility journey and the perinatal journey, because, you know, a lot of times these folks do end up getting pregnant. So then it's, what do we do now that you're in this pregnancy? Because oftentimes when there's been infertility or perinatal loss, there's a lot of anxiety during pregnancy. So knowing that this person really has training in all of that and and also just recognizing that this is an extremely emotional time from the beginning and accessing that support, you know, as soon as you start to feel it impacting your relationship. And a lot of times couples are embarrassed, you know, they feel shame and, you know, one, one or both of the partners might have a really difficult time wanting to access help because of that. So, you know, individual or couples counseling, if they're open to it from the very beginning, you know, I think is always helpful. I mean, I think everybody should have a therapist personally. Yes. So. <laughs> yes. Preach. Uh, yes. Everybody should everybody have just... get yourself a therapist. <laughs> Quick break from the action, folks. Ah, action. <laughs> 
I just want to tell you about my Patreon. Every week, I bring you guests and, seriously, lots of sex nerdery. <laughs> Help me keep doing that by becoming a supporter. What do you get in return? Cool perks. For real. I am going to be doing shout outs, stickers, a bunch of stuff. So check it out at ericamiley.com forward slash Patreon. That's E-R-I-K-A-M-I-L-E-Y dot com forward slash Patreon. I hope to see you and see more of you by becoming a Patreon. Thanks, guys. My clients, I, I have had friends and I mean, a uh, little self-disclosure like you, we've experienced pregnancy loss. Mm-hmm. Every piece of this it feels so clinical in the doctor's office. And then when you step out, you're expected to deal with this on your own as if your hormones aren't out right. absolutely wacky. Yeah, we haven't even talked about the medications and what they do to your body and your brain. Yeah, like getting, you know, getting shot in the butt with a with a injection every day, a couple times a day. Turns out it's not so sexy. So yeah, not to mention the emotional roller coaster it makes you go on. Uh, Yeah. So let's talk a little bit about these medications because I do think that that's important. So when someone is in the beginnings of this process and they, and they have started to move towards medication, what are some of those initial medications they might be suggested? So generally what doctors will start off with is something called Fermera or Clomid. Clomid's the old school one. That's how both of my children were conceived. Woo woo. Um, but Clomid tends to have a pretty emotional roller coaster of a side effect. Um, and it can cause things like emotional lability and then also insomnia, which we all know can super impact our brains and our bodies. Definitely our desire to have sex for sure. Yeah. <laughs> so, you know, those, I think people don't think, and I don't know that doctors are always really great at telling folks how much those medications are going to impact them, but those medications are there to help people ovulate or to have stronger ovulation. Um, they can also be used for men too. So that's kind of the first step. And already like we're seeing these emotional ups and downs that can really impact the sex that's going on in the intimacy So that's the first step. When you get to IUI, you know, you may use some of those medications. You might still be allowed, quote unquote, to have sexual intercourse at home through that process. But then when you get to IVF, a lot of times you're not allowed to have sexual intercourse. So that's the other thing is that, you know, the other side of things is you are actually being stopped from having that form of intimacy. Yeah. Before before we move forward a little bit, what is IUI and IVF for folks who don't know? Thank you. I, I'm really bad at that. Um, IUI is intrauterine insemination and IVF is in vitro fertilization. And, you know, we're so lucky that these things exist. They didn't exist a long time ago and they're relatively new and can be super helpful. But, you know, they come with their own whole package of of complicated feelings and <laughs> hormonal patterns. So, yeah, be, I have a lot of clients say it feels like I have the doctor in bed with me when we're going through this process. Yeah. I mean, that again speaks to the intimacy, right? Mm-hmm. And then uh, oftentimes, and, and I think it's important for us to touch on this, is that the emotional aspect of this is happening and the intimacy is happening, mm-hmm. but the, the medical world tends to ignore these things. Right. Totally ignores it. Doesn't talk about it at all other than to say like, yes, have sex or don't have sex. Like that's not super helpful when it comes to, you know, how are you doing? Like with all of this, it's actually really tough. How do you feel? Yeah, we could be here forever. Forever. Well, when, a, when a couple is like 
looking for help, where do you think they should begin? Yeah. So I think I would start with if they are seeing a reproductive endocrinologist asking if they have any referrals to folks in the community, because a lot of times they will know of therapists in the community that specialize in this area. They can also look online. Resolve is a great website to find some resources. Psychology Today, actually, you can specify what issue you're going through. And so they have fertility issues on there. They have perinatal issue on there, grief, loss, et cetera. Um, so really finding folks who who specialize in this is is kind of the first step. And then when you call and you're talking to people to see if they have space, really asking, do you have, you know, specialization in fertility treatment or in the perinatal world? Because that's super important. Absolutely. And if you don't have anyone in your area, mm-hmm. one of us. I know folks, you can always email us and I'll, I'll make sure that oh, yeah, uh, I will do a deep dig. Uh, <laughs> yeah, we will find somebody. We will find uh, someone in your area. You can also do, you know, if it's within the same state, you can, you know, do Skype with a therapist in a, in a bigger city. If you yes. need to, mm-hmm. there are, I, my entire practice, which many of the listeners knows already know that my entire practice is online. So That's I can awesome. serve the entire state and I know there's other therapists out there that are doing that. Yeah, and for we, sure. We will find them for yes. you. So. I am. I'm such a proponent of this world that I want to make sure people get connected to good treatment. So you need to find someone who's really going to understand that piece of it. Absolutely. So as far as like some of the like emotions someone might experience as they're going through this, I mean, I want to make sure that folks have some words for this. So we've already already talked about grief. What else might they experience while they're going through this process? So grief is huge. I talked a little bit about impact to self-esteem. Like a lot of times folks have a reproductive narrative, what we call reproductive narrative in their head when they start to go down this journey, right? So they have this story of what does building a family look like? And when it goes outside of that, when it's not fitting into that, that can immediately impact sense of self-worth, sense of the worth of your partner even, um, which of course we know can impact our our intimacy. So yeah, self-esteem is another word to use. Anger, frustration, I mean, pretty much all the emotions, sadness, anxiety is huge. And what I often find with folks who are going through fertility treatment or even just in the kind of the beginning stages is that they begin to, especially if there's some underlying anxiety, they begin to really start to try to control all the things in their life, right? Like, what are all the things that I do have control over? Because this process feels so out of my control. So I am going to, you know, get on this crazy diet that I read about on this one blog that says that I should only eat tomatoes and that is what will get me pregnant, you know, or I'm going to take this 7,000 supplements. I'm only going to wash my hands with this one type of soap. Um, And people can really go down that rabbit hole um, and it can just become so laser focused. That that powerlessness that they feel. Mm -hmm. It's such an intense feeling. feeling. And, And, you know, for a lot of us, especially folks, you know, therapists or professionals who are in this area, we tend to be a little type A and we tend to be used to being able to control a lot of things. And so this is one of those first times that folks really feel out of control and that does not feel good. And so they're looking for ways to kind of control in other areas. So then that increase is the stress and the cortisol levels go up, which of course is going to impact everything. Again, I'm going to have Ariel back because we've got <laughs> so much ground to cover. I know, like, we haven't talked about pregnancy. Good I know, we haven't even, <laughs> even touched that. But I do want people to be able to find you. How do they find you in the world? And what do you got going on that you want folks to know about? 
Yeah, yeah. Um, so I am in Asheville, North Carolina. I know you had Lindsay Brock on here a few weeks oh ago, goodness. and she's the best. I love her. So we are in the mountains, and you can find me on Psychology Today. You can find me. I have a Facebook page, Ariel Shoemaker Therapy and Photography. You can find me. My photography is at arielshoemakerphotography.com. I'm also on the Instagram because I'm on cool the gram. Like that. On the gram. Um, One little thing I wanted to add in is just like to give people a little nibble of hope because it's not all doom and gloom is that there are some things that we can do right to increase intimacy even while going through this crap. I always tell clients now is the time to pull out the bag of tricks right like if you have always been interested in using toys, for example, but you've been too scared to do it. Like go get yourself some toys, like dress up sexy, do whatever you need to kind of bring some sexy back into this baby making process because it can be really hard. And sometimes I'll tell people, if you're just feeling so touched out and so medicalized out that it's okay to take sex off the table at other times of the month so that you can still feel like it's okay to hold hands and make out and like go see a movie, but you don't need to have sexual intercourse if it's just feeling like too much right now. Because what we do find is that people do come back to each other. If they can make it through this fertility world, they will get back to a place where they feel connected again and sexual and excited. Um, It just might take a little bit. Oh my gosh, Ariel, thank you so much. And I can't wait to bring you back. We're going to dive right in again. So everything that we mentioned today will be in the show notes. So folks, thank you for sticking around to the end. And again, 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 I will make sure that you can contact Ariel if you need it. And you can contact me, Erica, at ericamiley.com, ericamiley.com. Yes, all the things. Thank you again, Ariel. Erica. So fun. Thanks for listening, folks. Please rate and review on iTunes. It helps this podcast get found. If you leave a five-star review, let me know about it on any social media, and I'll shout you out on the podcast. You can find my website at ericamiley.com. You can find me on Facebook, the Gram, and Twitter. See you all next time.